You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, welcome inside the 123rd edition of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com. Episode 123 is like so baseball related, but I didn't come up with anything clever. It's just, it's very baseball related. One, two, three innings. It is it? Well, I guess the strike, strike one, two, three. three. Yeah. You go in order of first, second, third base. That kind of counts in love and baseball. Um, so, you know, it's uh, it's episode 123. We're very poetic around here. Yeah, no, it, 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 there's something very satisfying. Do you have any of those, like, number things? I used to, what I used to do, and one, two, three fits in this. I used to see a, a number set, no matter what it was. And it would be satisfying to my mind if it all worked out to an even average. Huh. So like one, two, and three, you add them up, it's six, you divide by three, the average is two. Like that's just a very satisfying number group uh, for me. But something like one, four, four, that's also satisfying because that adds up to nine divided by three is three. Like that's just how, so one, two, three, it's not only satisfying numerically in that it goes up in order, but it also has that one little tick that's mine. Huh. Um, that I've no, I don't think I've ever really it's told most, anybody well, about. Now you've but now I've told forum. Yeah. thousands of people yeah. listening at home. Um, man, that's like the most intellectual thing I think we've ever had on this podcast. I'm pretty impressed by that. I thought you meant like a number thing. Like my favorite baseball player of all time is Larry Walker and Larry Walker would only do things in threes. His number was 33. He would set his alarm clock for three or 33 after the hour. He would, when he puts them in the microwave, it would only be for three 33 and those types of things. I thought that's what you meant. Like weird superstitions. You actually meant like intelligent oh, no. things rather than well, just no, superstitions. Like we almost had something like that in my family recently, if we're going to do numerical stuff. So my nephew was born a couple weeks ago um, and he was born on July 16th, 2017. So seven, 16, 17, but everybody on my dad's side of the family was really hoping he was going to be born a day later, which, you know, tried telling that to my sister, but that's a story for another day. Uh, in that case, he would have been born on seven, 17, 17, which would have been the hundredth birthday of my grandpa. Um, my grandpa was born on 7 17, 1917. Uh, his great grandchild would have been born on 7 17, 2017. Huh. Um, so we always joke that seven was my grandpa's lucky number, and we gave very close to my nephew Liam's lucky Man, number also being that be cool. same thing. But he decided he was ready a day early. So you know, that's fine. Those babies, they're never predictable. My sister's no, got no, one of those coming uh, in early September, so we'll get to talk about, we'll get to compare nephews and how cool they are coming up in September. Oh, no, we're doing Uncle Talk. That's going to be the whole podcast. Off-season is Uncle Talk. All of our off-season podcasts will just be us talking about nieces and nephews. It's going to be great. Um, So let's get started. Three (laughs) strikes for episode 123. Thanks for tuning in on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher app, Google Play, wherever you found us. We appreciate it. We're also at MILB.com slash podcast. Get in touch. Podcast at MILB.com. Sam's on Twitter. Sam Dykes or MILB. I am at Tyler Mon. Ratings, reviews, subscriptions. Do it all. Do it all. We appreciate it. And uh, let's kick it off promotions across the gamut this week throughout the world of minor league baseball strike one is where we start as sam put it um i will steal his phrase the future of the first base position in the national league east kind of solidified last week with the promotions of dominic smith to the new york mets and reese hoskins to the philadelphia phillies um dom smith had a great season uh to start the year with triple a las vegas uh, and we sort of saw that same type of thing with Ahmed Rosario, who cooled a little bit. But Smith, his slash line in 114 games, 330-386-519, 16 homers, 34 doubles. Fantastic season for him. Uh, the 16 homers were a career high. We talked to Dom Smith in the podcast before the season started, talked about how power is generally the last thing to come along for power hitters. He seems like he's really figured that out. Reese Hoskins leading the International League with 29 homers and a 966 OPS. Uh, hit a home run on August 10th, or on August 9th, rather, and then about 12 hours later was called up to the Phillies to make his Major League debut and... A little bit down the ladder, the top prospect in the Chicago White Sox organization, or the number two prospect in the Chicago White Sox organization, Eloy Jimenez is going to make the jump from Class A advanced Winston-Salem to Double A Birmingham. So guys moving up all over the place. What excites you about this trio of promotions? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I really like the idea of both Dom Smith and uh, Reese Hoskins coming up at the same time. 
like you said, you know, my first reaction to that was, oh, wow, this is really the future of the first base position in the NL East is kind of here and solidified. And then I got all the Braves fans tweeting at me like, I think it's already here with Freddie Freeman. Listen, I get it. Freddie Freeman is the, you know, the toast of the division at the position. I get that. That's fine. But, you know, the Dominic Smith and Reese Hoskins are definitely supposed to be in New York and Philly for a while. They are going to they are there for the long haul. Their teams are kind of built around those two guys being the future first baseman or the you know, first baseman of the future, not just this year for years to come. That's why, you know, the Mets traded away Lucas Duda. Not well, team wasn't performing up to standards and they could trade away Lucas Duda. And then they traded away Jay Bruce, who was kind of a de facto first baseman. Uh, that's how you kind of get him time there. They did all that to clear the path for Dominic Smith. There's nobody in his way now. Wilmer Flores, yeah, sure, he can play some first base, but is Dom Smith's position now and for the foreseeable future. Same way with Reese Hoskins, uh, except, well, I, I shouldn't say the same way. With Hoskins, they moved him to the outfield. They got him some time and left. By no means is he a left fielder. There are also people trying to be cheeky with me saying, oh, he's playing left field. He's not a future first baseman. He is very much a future first baseman. Uh, for some reason, the Phillies don't want to knock Tommy Joseph off of his pedestal at first base. I think right away, Hoskins is going to be the best hitter uh, or the better hitter of those two options. Uh, he certainly showed it last night. Uh, take you behind the curtain. We're recording a day early this week on Tuesday. Um for anybody who saw Reese Hoskins hit two home runs in San Diego, uh, not only got his first one, which he had a, the awesome reaction from the dugout. I can never get enough of it uh, when they give him the silent treatment, high five himself throughout the whole thing. And then he went deep again in San Diego. Obviously not an easy park to do that in. Um, I, I think he's going to kind of take over at first base eventually for Joseph. Um, he has gotten one start there. Uh, but most of his starts have been in left. He's had some adventures out there. Definitely don't think he's going to stick. Uh, out of the two, you know, Smith right now is the higher-ranked prospect. He's at 41. Hoskins is at 71. I think Hoskins has kind of done enough to kind of push past Dominic Smith in terms of he has more power. He's, he's your more stereotypical first baseman. Like you said, Tyler, power kind of develops as you go along. I don't think Dom Smith is ever going to be more than maybe a 20, 25 homer guy. I could see or foresee a future in which at the major league level, Reese Hoskins is a 35 home run guy. He's already sitting on 29, like you said, at Lehigh Valley. He's added two more with the Phillies. He's up to 31 this year in 120 games. Uh, you know, he's only going to get more used to the major league level. Uh, but not only that, he's a good overall hitter, you know, hitting 284 this year with a 385 OBP at AAA Lehigh Valley. This isn't just, you know, he's not a one-trick pony either. Um, Dom Smith, more than capable of hitting 300 potentially in the future for one or two seasons. E even more than that, he he can spray the ball all over the field. Uh, but when the, you know, the threshold for value at the first base position is to hit with some power, um, just hitting for 300, 310 like Dom Smith can do will kind of make him a league average bat where I can see Hoskins kind of going above that. What Smith has the advantage in is I think he's a better fielder than Hoskins is. Hoskins will field the position fine. He'll handle himself, whatever. Don't think he has a gold glove in him uh, going forward. I, I won't say Smith will be a gold glover, but he's definitely more than capable of fielding the position at first. He'll be an asset there. Um, he won't take away runs. Or I mean, he won't add runs, in other words. He'll, he'll have a positive defensive run saved at a position where you know you're not asked that much. Uh, he'll definitely add some value there with his glove. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out. Um, obviously, they're going to be playing each other tons uh, over the rest of this year, over next year, whatever. Um, that should make for a fun rivalry. Fun to see them called up in the same week. Uh, just to touch quickly on Eloy Jimenez, um, obviously one of the most exciting prospects in the game at this point, number seven overall. You could certainly make a case um, that he is the most exciting outfield prospect in the game right now. I think it's between him, Victor Robles, and Ronald Acuna and the Brave system. Um, the thing that stands out for him, Nez, is his very loud power. Uh, this year, he's translated that power not into just you know home runs. Last year, I think he had 40 doubles. This year, and that's kind of how it stood out. It was like 40 doubles, 14 home runs at Class A South Bend. Uh, this year, he's got 16 homers in only 71 games in the Carolina League before this promotion, Double A Birmingham. Uh, 
we saw what he could do when he hit that light stand in the Carolina League home run derby. That power is very real. That's not, you know, that's not just home run derby power. That that shows up in games all the time. Um, I got to see him at the Futures game take BP. He was hitting the back wall at Marlins Park, hitting some of the farthest shots that I had seen there. Um, obviously, that comes from partly his size. He's li- listed at 6'4", 205. He might have been uh, the, the biggest position player in that room, in that uh, world team room. So he certainly uses that to his advantage. Uh, you know, he's, he's part of that really exciting White Sox system, came over from the Cubs uh, back in July as part of that Jose Quintana trade. The fact that they're pushing him now, uh, the Cubs did a little bit of that. I think they promoted him last year to Myrtle Beach just in time for the playoffs. Didn't get any regular season time there, but got some Carolina League playoff time. Uh, the White Sox are kind of taking that same tact with him now, getting allowing him to see Birmingham uh, for these last three, four weeks of the season. Uh, and I, I think that's going to be to his benefit, obviously. Um, whether he's going to hit the ground running is kind of immaterial at this point. Um, if you can see double A arms, can make those adjustments, know how to prepare in the off season, uh, that's where the value is going to come these next couple weeks. It, could he? Is he? You know, possible to hit five, ten home runs over the rest of the year, um, finish in the twenties. That's definitely possible with him. Uh, wouldn't be surprised to see him make that run even against double A arms. But uh, it's more about just getting it, this final experience, getting to see guys with better command, better breaking stuff, and and seeing how he can adjust to that. Over the short term and then going into the long term in 2018. Yeah, it's something we see in organizations a decent amount. Top prospects who get a taste of a level to end one season and then get thrown into that level uh, to go full board the next season. Now, in the case of somebody like Jimenez, he's that good that maybe he's not going to see double A for too long at the start of 2018, um, depending on how things go. But I do, I, I agree. I think it's a, it's a necessary thing in development a lot of times that guys get sort of that advanced look the advanced scouting on the level because then your off-season regimen your training for the following year all that stuff you can kind of play off of I've seen this level I know what to expect there this is how I'm going to attack it in this next season Um, so it's I think it's great for prospects when they get that type of look before a season wraps up and for for Eloy Jimenez it'll be a few weeks uh, with the double-a Birmingham Barons in the Southern League before the offseason hits which is like a month away and it's just absurd but we're not going to talk about that yet strike two this week Sam the uh, 2017 playoffs Coming up across the minor leagues in the beginning of September and the major leagues as well in October. Um, This question, I think, is a good one, especially because of what we've seen happen at the big league level over the last several years where we see guys jump up, make the stretch run with the team, and then make a big impact in the postseason. Who in 2017 could do that at the major league level? Or, in the case of somebody like Jimenez, a big prospect who gets promoted, who could do it at the minor league level? Yeah, so the couple guys I'm going to have uh, Tyler, our, our major league guys, just because I, I think that's something we're, we're going to see more of. There's one guy in particular doing it right now and definitely affecting races. Uh, one guy who I think will kind of come up and do the same. At least they're grooming him for that same way. So um, sticking to the majors, Rafael Devers, what he's done with the Red Sox is, is kind of amazing. And, and not just amazing in terms of He's somebody we've seen do this before. He hit 20 home runs this year between Portland and Pawtucket. I thought they should have called him up from Portland to Pawtucket way before they did. He was a 300 hitter there. Um, you know, wasn't striking out a ton. Was reaching base, hitting for power, all this kind of stuff. Uh, I thought his defense had improved this year. He was looking nimble there. Um, Red Sox kind of jammed the roster at tri- AAA uh, for third base, and that caused him to hang back. Um, he only spent, I think, nine games at Pawtucket before they brought him to the majors. And then what does he do? He's he's really hit the ground running. He's hitting 339 there through 16 games. Already has six home runs in 16 games, um, which is kind of putting him a, on a track of what we saw out of Gary Sanchez last year uh, when the Yankees brought him up. And we saw him hit for prodigious power over a fairly small sample uh, in the Bronx. Devers is playing that same role this year for the Red Sox. It's really filled a need for them as well. Obviously, with Pablo Sandoval being released, uh, third base was already a, a hole in the lineup uh, for Boston. But bringing Devers now, it's an asset. Um, and the fact that he's hitting home runs off what was a 103 mile an hour pitch yeah, from Rawls Chapman good. the other way on a pitch inside, yeah, that I think I watched that GIF a lot. Not only the GIF, 
but the, the yeah, reaction the video, video of the guy in right field uh, was from the so Yankees amazing fan, which was also amazing um and uh, i mean i can't blame him he was confident or all chapman's coming in throwing heat to a rookie and you know he blows him inside and then just watching everybody's eyes just follow that was kind of amazing but anyway so red sox are now pretty comfortably sitting atop the al east uh, and I, I feel like you can draw a fairly straight line between Devers. You know, he's one of nine guys in the lineup, one of nine guys in the field. He's not doing this by himself by any means, but um, filling a very big hole that the Red Sox would have maybe have tried to trade for. You know, they were in discussions with Todd Frazier reportedly or for Todd Frazier with the right White Sox um, to allow that to happen internally is kind of a learning point, hopefully for them uh, in terms of. You know, trusting the prospects that they have. Dave Dombrowski notoriously trades his guys uh, to try to bring in major league talent. So it's to see Devers do what he's doing uh, as young as he's doing it is astounding. But also knowing his skill set is not all that uh, surprising to a certain level. Uh, the other guy I wanted to bring up uh, is Walker Bueller, uh, the number 13 overall prospect in the game right now. Not currently with the Dodgers. We know the Dodgers are having a very historic season. Very historic. I don't think that's exactly what I meant to put that as. You either have an historic season or a, or not a non-historic season. But anyway, um, Bueller currently with AAA Oklahoma City. It's kind of the Dodgers are almost by definition trying to have their cake and eating it too. Um, you know, they're enjoying all that success in the majors. First team to 80 wins, yada, yada, yada. Uh, Bueller coming off Tommy John surgery two years ago. You know, this is going to be his first fully healthy year. They're really limiting his innings. He's only thrown 80 and two thirds so far this year, but they're slowly allowing him to climb the ladder. He started at uh, Class A Advanced Rancho Cucamonga, moved up to Tulsa for 11 starts. Uh, now he's at Oklahoma City, and they moved him into the bullpen. Now, first, that allows them to control for his innings. But second, it's very possible Bueller could come to the Dodgers. I mean, that was kind of always the rumor at the beginning of the year, that best-case scenario, he would still be healthy. The Dodgers could use the bullpen help, whatever. And that's exactly what's played out. Uh, I think the other night he struck out five of the six batters he faced in two perfect innings. Uh, it was his first career save, so he's obviously transitioned well into the role. He's got the package of pitches to make it work. His fastball is given a 65 grade on the 20-80 scale by MLB.com. Curveball and slider also above average offerings. Uh, to see him work in a small, you know, sample like that is when he can really pop off. Uh, he doesn't have to worry about trying to get extend the outing, all that kind of stuff. So to add his arm to an already impressive Dodgers team would just be insane. I mean, imagine being, you know, beginning of the year if we said, yeah, the best team in baseball is going to add, uh, you know, a top 20 prospect down the stretch and get even better. It's, it's kind of nuts, and that's the situation the Dodgers find themselves in. So uh, Devers and Bueller both have prospect eligibility still. Uh, Devers will probably graduate much sooner than Bueller will, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if those are two prospects who really affect uh, not only you know the, the end of the, the season right now, um, but going into the postseason, they're going to play big roles at the it's Major League level. It's going to be a fun level. ride down the stretch. Uh, the American League still – all but one team in the American League is within nine games of the wild card. All but one team that isn't leading a division. The Chicago White Sox are 14 games out of the wild card race, but the Oakland Athletics are the next worst team in the AL. They're only nine games back, which at this point in the season is somewhat outlandish. The second worst team in the National League is 20 games back. There are only five teams, check that, four teams outside of the two leaders, four teams that are inside of that nine-game margin in the National League. So this is going to be tight down to the end, and it's going to be tight on both sides. Looks like more so on the American League side right now. Uh, one race that we know is not going to be tight looks like it'll be Walker Bueller's Los Angeles Dodgers so yeah if the uh if the Dodgers add him to the mix a scary pitching staff gets even scarier uh strike three this week Sam the 2017 draft is now two months in the rearview mirror and we are seeing a whole lot of guys contributing already at the professional level Hunter Green is off to a terrific start uh, both uh, at the plate where he's gotten some ABs and getting ready to be himself on the mound as well in the Cincinnati Reds organization. Uh, we've seen a lot of guys jump right in. We're also going to talk with a 2017 draftee today and Alex Fajardo of the Detroit Tigers organization who hasn't gotten a chance uh, to perform in a professional setting as of yet. But give me your standout so far from this 2017 draft. 
Yeah, I, I definitely wanted to bring up Green, so I'm glad you did. Um, just that the way he's kind of worked into that role, um, you know, with the Reds, the fact that he's hitting as well as he has. I think he had a, a three or four hit game just earlier this week. Um, I expected him to be a pitcher first and foremost. I still expect that to happen. Um, but the fact that he is doing as well as he is uh, right now with the bat, uh, again, I think he's only played thir- three games there so far. He's got a triple. He's got two doubles, um, two strikeouts, no walks. You know, So he he's handling himself well. Uh, the fact that they did not move him to the Arizona League is kind of telling. I think they realize how talented he is, and he, he would kind of be wasting his time at the complex level. Let him get in some time in the Pioneer League. Uh, get what it's like away from, you know, the creature comforts of, of being in a very controlled environment. Um, so I'll be interested to see how that kind of goes from there on out. Um, but the guy taken ahead of him, Royce Lewis, got promoted to Cedar Rapids uh, just this week, and he's absolutely taken off there. Um, that surprised me, I got to say. As, as good as he was doing in the GCL, uh, in the twin system, he was hitting 271, uh, had more walks than strikeouts, 19 walks, 17 strikeouts, leading to a 390 OBP. Really good numbers, really fast like we expected him to be, uh, 15 steals in 36 games. Um, so had done all the right things, but you know, as the number one overall pick, um, sometimes we put a little too much pressure on those guys, expect them to move quickly. He was a high school guy, uh, so you know, as good as he was doing, let him get his his success. Maybe he needed to be a little bit more in a controlled environment than Green did. Green's talent, I don't think anybody doubts that uh, Green is more talented than Lewis. It's just Lewis's signing bonus and all that kind of stuff kind of played itself out a little bit more advantageously to the Twins uh, than would have been the case had they taken Green there. Um, but to see him already at Class A Cedar Rapids tells you a lot about what they thought about what he had done in the GCL and what they think about his readiness. Um, and he, he's absolutely taken off there. He's he, he got four hits in his first game uh, with the Colonels, went four for five. Uh, overall, he's seven for 13 over three games with them so far. Um, so that's just really fun to watch them uh, both kind of settle into new places, both away from the GCL or the AZL, uh, and take off in the way they could. Uh, a quick plug last week. Uh, my tool shed on Friday was on Brent Rooker, who was arguably maybe the best hitter in the NCAA last year. He won the SEC Triple Crown. Uh, he's moved up quickly. He's already at Class A Advanced Fort Myers. He told me that was the plan all along for him. Um, I think he was named the Twins Organizational Player of the Week. He was certainly named FSL Player of the Week uh, for a big week last week. He's hit 13 homers in 49 games between Fort Myers and Elizabethan. Uh, he's got six homers in 27 games for Fort Myers in a you know what we know is a pitcher-friendly Florida State League. Um, so he's kind of carried the gains that he had made, uh, and he said he was trying to eliminate movement a little bit, trying to make things simpler going into this year. Things have kind of clicked at Mississippi State. He's carried that to the pros. Uh, he has some experience playing in longer seasons. He, he had played in the Cape League and I think the New England Collegiate Baseball League before that. So he's played with a wood bat before. He's played 100 games before. Uh, this shouldn't be a surprise that he's playing as well as he has, but the fact that uh, his his final year with the Bulldogs was as it was as breakout as it was to see him carry it to the program is will make him another one to watch in that Twins system. So Twins, if you're a Twins fan looking for optimism in that system, um, they're doing really well with their first two picks right now. One of the other guys I want to just mention real quick was the fourth overall selection in the draft this year, Brendan McKay, who has gotten things started in the Tampa Bay Rays organization with Hudson Valley. At the plate, 21 games, only hitting 205, does have four homers, a 7-11 OPS. But on the mound, he's made three starts, the two-way player from Louisville, the first baseman, and the pitcher. This uh, start on the mound so far in pro ball, yes, it's a low level, and yes, this is a guy who was very effective against some of the best competition in college baseball. But so far... Eight innings pitched, two hits, nine strikeouts, three walks. He hasn't allowed a run. Opponents are batting 083 against him. Um, And Brendan McKay, 
if somebody's going to be able to do it to be a two-way guy, Brendan McKay could very well be that guy. We know the plan for Hunter Green is more than likely that he's going to end up on the mound full-time. Uh, the Reds have said that they'll let him show off that bat so far in his debut season. He's done that through a first few games in Billings in the Pioneer League. But for Brendan McKay, it's been a pretty cool start for him doing it both ways for the Hudson Valley Renegades in the Class A short season New York Penn League. Yeah, one thing I like about McKay, too, is that he fits more of a DH profile yeah. um, or a first base profile. Even if he, even if they decide he's going to play first base for five games and then pitch, um, yeah, he'll be using his arm a little bit, but not as much as Green would be at shortstop. Um, so I, if I were to be, like you said, kind of like a handicapper or, or a betting man right now, I would put it uh, that McKay is more likely to do both if, if we're looking for somebody to kind of hang our hats on or – have hope for a two-way player in the major someday. So that's three strikes for this week's edition of the show before the show podcast. And coming up, we are going to head to the Detroit Tigers organization and the Tigers first round selection in 2017. The Florida Gators product, Alex Fajardo joins the show from Lakeland, Florida coming up next. The state of Florida has produced one whole heck of a lot of talent over the last several years in the Major League Draft, just in the first round, just in guys coming out of the University of Florida, and we find one of those guys for episode number 123 of the show before the show podcast. Alex Fajardo joins us from Lakeland, Florida, the home of the Detroit Tigers complex, the University of Florida prospect who was the first round selection for the Tigers in this year's draft. Not the first time he was drafted by the Tigers either. We'll talk about that. Alex, welcome to the show. What's going on? Uh Great doing? to talk to good. you. So tell us about what this has been like so far for you since you joined the organization. After you were drafted in June, Tigers kind of made it known that you wouldn't pitch professionally this year. No rookie level ball, no heading off to Connecticut, none of that. 123 and two-thirds innings this season at Florida. Obviously, that year ended pretty well for you. This uh, gives you a chance to kind of get acclimated yeah. to pro ball without the strain of being in a rotation and adding to that innings limit. But what has it been like since June, since we haven't seen you on a mound? Uh, it's been pretty – it's been different. It's weird because, you know, being in Lakeland, I can walk over and see the Gulf Coast League guys play or the high A team play. So it's weird, you know, watching baseball and not playing. But it's pretty cool just, you know, finally getting a, a nice off season to start lifting and, you know, doing a lot of conditioning and working out and just trying to get stronger just to try to – you know, get better for the start. This of is year. such a unique situation too, because like you said, you got a couple of affiliates within walking distance and you're also really close to both your hometown in Tampa and where you went to college in Gainesville. And you're really familiar, obviously with that area. Not a whole lot of guys get that experience during the, their rookie year in pro ball. Mm -hmm. How has that helped you get acclimated, help you get comfortable? It's been pretty cool. I mean, I think like once a week, my family usually comes up and we go over to like the high A team and watch the Lakeland Flying Tigers play. So, you know, I feel real comfortable. On uh, the weekends, I usually come home, you know, see uh, see the family. And, you know, it's, it's been really comfortable. The The whole organization has been uh, has made it really smooth of a transition for me. And, and what are your you, – what is the day-to-day -day like for you in terms of, like, what you're doing to work out? I know you mentioned lifting before, but n normally guys we bring on the show, you know, we're talking about what they're doing to get into games and that kind of thing. Um, as you said, you're not doing that. So what exactly are you doing at the complex day to day? Yeah, I mean, I go in there and um, usually go over to the training room. And I just already uh, start doing like strengthening stuff in the, in, the, in the training room, like for like my arm and stuff, you know, just making sure, you know, just I don't know, like if that's something you usually do or not, but I like doing it year round and, uh, you know, doing like band work and stuff like that. And then just going, conditioning with the guys and then uh, working out in the weight room. The new, uh, I think they redid it, so it's really nice over there. And then after that, I kind of have a, a free day. Alex, when you got to Florida uh, for college ball, you had already been drafted once by the Detroit Tigers. You were a 40th round pick coming out of high school. And to have an organization then for three years keep you on the radar and jump your draft stock Almost 1,200 picks. You were the 1,210th selection in 2014, and then yeah. you're the 18th selection in 2017. What did that feel like knowing just how much you were wanted by the Tigers organization that so often we see guys, 40th round pick or very low pick, they go on, another organization falls in love with them, ends up nabbing them in the draft. But for the Tigers to have been there, senior year of high school, junior year of college, what has that meant to you? 
it's uh it's really cool um i guess in college in high school you know i always wanted to go to college that i, I kind of made that clear right away so you know that was just like awesome that their organization took the time to you know draft me out of high school and then just to keep the ties and three years later be in a better situation but with the same organization was uh was really special because you know i never heard of that before and it, was, it wasn't really anything i even thought of either it just kind of caught me blindsided and it was uh, really cool just uh just you know, feeling really wanted like that by a great organization that, you know, it's been really first Let's class. take it back a little bit and talk about your time in college with the Gators. Uh, and we'll start on draft day. You, through two scoreless innings, picked up a save in the 3 nothing win over Wake Forest to clinch the Gators' berth in the College World Series from that Super Regional Series win. And while you guys were already on the field, the first round is underway in the Major League Draft. You get selected. I saw there was a report that your family was actually at the ballpark watching that telecast, but you didn't want to know until after the game where you'd gone in the first round. Walk us through that night and, I mean, it's, I would imagine pretty difficult to keep that fully out of your mind but not only to have to do that but then go out and throw on a day that's so crazy what was that night like for you uh, it was cool it was special I mean we had to play a double header that day so you know we all wanted to get it done in the first game so you know we could have all that time with our families you know and with the teammates and you know just enjoy that but it was actually really cool it wasn't cool that we lost the first game but it was just cool how it it all ended up and uh I didn't really – I tried asking my dad, like, because we got to watch the first, like, five picks as a team, and then they were like, all right, you got to get ready to go because we were in rain delay. And uh, I tried to ask my dad, like, oh, you know, what are you hearing? And he was like, just focus on the game because I told him I was going to – I was going to – I was hoping to pitch. It came down to it, and uh, so he just made sure that I was locked in. And then during the game, I mean, it's, it's about winning the game and going to the College World Series, so I didn't want to hear about any of that. And I went down to the bullpen pretty early just in case, just so I didn't have to hear anything, like, in the fifth inning. And then uh, that was about it. It was actually a really special moment. I always wanted to come out for out of the pen in a big game like that just to see if I, uh, you know, had that Madison Bumgarner <laughs> intensity, you know, out there out of the pen. Well, not only did you do a Madison Bumgarner impersonation coming out of the pen like that, but you were also, you know, Carl's World Series most outstanding player. Uh, the Gators win the first ever national title in school history for that sport. Um, and for, you know, obviously a, an athletic program that has won national titles and other sports that must be really special. But what kind of prep do you think that does per, to play meaningful games at the college level to go as far as you possibly can uh, to, I think, as, as you said elsewhere, win the final game of the season? Um, what kind of prep do you that's done for your pro career? Uh, well, I mean, I know. I know talking to guys that I used to play with over at UF that are in, in pro ball, you know, a year or two older than me, they all said that, you know, right when they started, they could just tell the difference how, like, just playing in the SEC, the grind of the SEC was just so much different than even where they stood off in pro ball. So, I mean, that definitely would, I would think, would prepare me. And then just playing in, in environments like, you know, the schools in the SEC, the 10-plus thousand people there, you, in College World Series, you got to play in those 20-plus thousand um, uh, people environment and just, you know, being prepared to play the game in front of a lot of people on TV and the spotlight. So I think all that was, uh, I, I mean, after your first year, you get used to it, but I think that definitely prepared me being at UF. For, uh, the football. College World Series, Sam notes you're the most outstanding player in the College World Series. You pitch two games, both against TCU, and dominate over the course of two games. 14 and a third innings pitch, no runs, 22 strikeouts, and 14 and a third. And it comes on the heels of a season in which you guys were knocked out uh, in a game against Texas Tech. You pitched in that game. The 2017 run to get there and have the opportunity to do it again. And then, I mean, really pull a bum garner and take a team on your back into the finals where you guys win a World Series title. What was the the mental process like? Once you clinched against Wake Forest, you get into the College World Series, and you know this is your last go round. You're going in the first round of somebody. You're not going back to school. What was that experience in uh, the way that it was memorable, especially juxtaposed with how things ended in 2016? Yeah, I mean, each year, I mean, making some College World Series is awesome, um, but you know, each year we ended you know, not where he wanted to be. So I think uh, after the first year, it was really special. Just, you know, we won, I think, three games there, and it was a great time. And then sophomore year, it was uh, it was actually a big bummer, you know, just going out there and losing two in a row, going home. And that, that kind of left a bad taste in our mouth. And, uh, you know, just all class in general, the 
I guess it'd be like the 2014 recruiting class of Florida. We all knew that we would we would come out with a you know College World Series win. So I mean, that's what we all took pride in for three years. It wasn't about individual individual staff anything like that. It was like we're going to win the World Series. So I think this year, like we knew like we had the team to do it, and we knew we had something like a little different in the last few years, just with chemistry and just grind gritty players. And uh, it was crazy, you know. A lot of guys stepped up and. And if we started a freshman in the last game of the of the season, and he he uh, he diced up for a little bit out there, and he it just just crazy. You don't you don't hear about that often. And uh, just kind of take me through your progression as a pitcher. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the mental game, but you know, being able to watch s- some of your outings, and I think John Smoltz, um, which must be crazy to have John Smoltz talk about your game, but for the draft <laughs> yeah. night, he was the guy breaking down your video. Uh, he called your delivery a little funky and that it kind of helps you out. How did that delivery kind of develop, you know, going back to even your days in high school? Well, I mean, I guess it was a little weird at first. When I saw that because I never thought I was funky delivery or anything like that. No one's ever told me that. <laughs> but, I mean, it was cool, I guess. I mean, I guess that's a cool little advantage. I hope I hope it stays funky. But, um, I mean, my dad really kept a, a limit on how much I threw when I was younger because he just didn't want me to get abused out there throwing. And, uh so I didn't really start pitching um, until my junior year of high school because uh, he's the high school coach over there, and he needed a he needed another pitcher out of the bullpen. So you know, I had to I had to go out there and throw out the pen. And by the end of the year, I was starting. And then um, I think I always been able to throw strikes, but I think just having the ability once I got to college, the first first year or two it was tough for me to get past six seven innings. Like seven was like a complete game for me. Mm-hmm. I think this junior year, I I. I Kind of, you know, instead of trying to go pitch for strikeouts the whole, the whole, uh, the whole game, just trying to go out there and get quick outs, you know, get the team back in because that's what they want to do. They want to hit. They don't want to play defense, and you know, just win ball games. And pitching on Fridays is way different because we don't have the bullpen. The whole bullpen, you know, depleted. It was, you know, I'm trying to save the bullpen for the next two games just in case anything happens. So it's just a different mindset. But it was a, uh, it was a nice little, little growth throughout the years. And uh, one pitch that's kind of stuck out to me and anybody who's ever watched you is your slider. Um, what was the development of that pitch? When did you start throwing it? And when did you really know it, it, it could be a true out pitch for you? Um, I mean, I guess when I started throwing, I always thought I had a pretty good breaking ball. I mean, it was always kind of like a curveball, and I still hold it the same today. But I guess just like as I had my and it just kind of came out more as a slider. And now the, it's pretty hard now. So it's kind of, I guess it's my bread and butter the last couple of years, but, um, I mean, I don't really, I just, uh, I just, you know, just throw the same and, you know, it's, it's Alex, how much, uh, development goes into finding that third pitch? I know toward the end of your college season, you're really throwing a change up pretty solidly late in the year. Um, that is such a, a massive thing for guys to learn at the early stages of a professional career. So how much have you been working on that and kind of figuring out what that mix is going to look like next season when you get into pro starts? I mean, I, I already. I mean, I got to change up. I feel like mentally. I mean, I got three pitchers, and I, I even think I got four because I can, I can kind of manipulate my breaking ball. But I mean, I guess in college, it's just not. It's just. It's not that it's not needed. It's just different, I guess. And uh, you know, it, I guess it wasn't really as needed the last couple of years. So, I mean, I know. I know I have a changeup. I mean, over the summer, you know, pitching against all the lefties from um you know japan and taiwan and all the slap hitters i mean i had to throw and change up a lot just to survive out there and i, mean, I thought I, I feel like i have a third pitch so i can't actually you know i guess prove some people tell wrong. us about that was with the u.s collegiate national team that you got a chance to get some international experience um those teams over the last several years it's like you see guys who are stars on that roster and then all of a sudden they're in the upper minors like 15 minutes later G- give me a rundown of what it was like you play with so many talented guys from across the country on that roster that you don't ordinarily get exposed to unless you're on an all-star team what was your group like on the collegiate national team it was crazy because, you know, I thought at first when we all got brought together, I mean, it was awesome that I had Don Guthrie and Mike Rivera with me, um, which uh, they were both players at UF. And it was just weird because at first we thought, you know, I guess we're going to have a lot of egos, a lot of you know, big-name guys. And then once I got there, everyone was just really good guys. The coaches were awesome. And we kind of bonded real quickly. I think I kind of helped us get through the – it was only a month, but I guess that kind of got us through the month. Because, you know, those long bus rides and the 20-something-hour plane rides was tough. But it was awesome how cool everyone was. And it's cool keeping up with them. And 
you know, just seeing how they progress as players. These are the names, uh, like Alex, who have been taken in either the first, second, third, or fourth round out of Florida just since 2016 on the pitching side. A.J. Puck, a first-round pick for Oakland in 2016. Logan Shore, his teammate in 2016 in the second round. Dane Dunning, first round of the Nationals in 2016. Sean Anderson, third round of the Red Sox in 2016. Scott Moss, fourth round to the Reds in 2016. That's like a, a all-star rotation for the minor leagues just in guys who came out of Florida. So you get a chance, you know, you mentioned keeping in touch with guys from the national team. You can bounce so much of this stuff off of guys who have made it into pro ball ahead of you. How how much during this season uh, at the collegiate level did you guys get a chance to kind of talk about what it was going to be like when you made it into pro ball or, you know, the, the routine, the rigors of getting started as a minor leaguer versus what you did in college? Um, honestly, I mean, I feel like I, I, I haven't asked much questions, especially during the season. I was going to – I don't want to bother the guys now. You know, they got their season to look forward to, so I was going to wait for the offseason to ask them questions. And then during my season – I didn't want to worry about anything other than Florida baseball. So, you know, I wasn't asking them questions, thinking about the future. I was, I was, you know, just worried about the next team that we had to play and you know, just trying to win or sweep a series. Alex, let's talk about one other teammate of yours in your baseball career. Uh, you went to Alonso High School in Tampa. And there, when you were a freshman, you were a teammate of Jose Fernandez. Is that right? He was a senior when you were a freshman? So yeah, what right. was that experience watching somebody that you played with so young grow up and have the success that he had? And then obviously it comes to a tragic way too early end last year, but such a phenom, such a talent and somebody to watch at the very, or before everybody knew his name, you guys knew his name. Yeah. I mean, uh, he was uh, a special guy, you know, on the field and off. And he was, uh, he was a mentor and a leader to everyone in Tampa. It wasn't even the guys at Alonzo high school. I mean, Everyone looked up to Jose, and he was he was like a god to us. And uh, we all knew he had something special. And, you know, he just kind of showed us, you know, how to work hard and how to play the game the right way with passion, you know, just trying to win and not worried about anything else but winning. Alex Fajardo is the second-ranked prospect in the Detroit Tigers organization and uh, a guy who's doing a whole lot of work getting ready for 2018 in Lakeland, Florida, and this Tigers system, which is loaded with pitching talent, a whole lot of exciting young starting pitching talent. Matt Manning, the top prospect in the organization. Alex is right behind him. Bo Burrows, we've already seen what Michael Fulmer is doing at the major league level. Kyle Funkhauser, there's a ton of talent in this system, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch as these years uh, start to get these guys closer to the big leagues. Alex, thanks a ton for, for spending some time with us, and uh, congratulations on uh, the most outstanding player in the College World Series title, and soon I'm sure we'll be giving you congratulations on all the professional success too. <laughs> Thank you very much. Benjamin Hill with uh, one more road trip on the docket in 2017. Is that all? That is all. On one hand, I'm happy about that because I feel like I've been to a lot of places and I'm a little worn out right now. But on the other hand, didn't this season just begin? Yeah, exactly. Like, where has the time gone? No idea. And it makes me question a lot of things. I mean, it's only like four months of the year I'm really on the road. And I'm not on the road for even the majority of those four months. And yet it defines me. What else <laughs> do I do with my life? That's a pretty good thing to be defined by, though. Do we want to do that? Do we want to just do that for this segment? What does Ben what do is, with his life? What is ben I, we can have an off-season like psychological like, oh, profile. Could you imagine if get to yeah. know if, podcasters? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Feel free. Ooh. Hey, tweet me questions about my personal life. Twitter at Ben's Biz. I probably won't answer, but you know, be like, a, be like a <laughs> Ken Burns documentary series. Um, so with one for all of us, I mean, so with one road trip left on the docket in 2017. Benjamin Hill joins us for this week's edition of the uh, Show Before the Show podcast. And Ben kicks things off this week with a story from the AA Altoona Curve um, and a very notable fan who is no longer with the curve but made an impression in Altoona. Really cool story. Yeah, this uh, story, let's see, we are talking today on a Tuesday. On a Tuesday. Wow, and this story appeared today on Tuesday, August 15th. Wow. This is what happens to right. This is what happens to everyone in baseball. You just lose track of uh, the days. But this uh, story appeared today, August 15th. Um, it's about uh, Altoona, where I visited uh, at the end uh, earlier this month at the end of my last road trip uh, throughout the Northeast. And um, I spoke with a man named uh, Ken Mielnik. I hope that's how I think that's how he pronounced his last name. I, I certainly spoke to him. Uh, Ken Mielnik, um, whose wife, Susie, uh, passed away in January 2016. 
And until she passed, she had attended literally every game in the history of of the Altoona Curve from their first season in 1999 all the way up through 2015, um, you know, 16 years, 17 seasons. Uh, She had never missed a game, 1,223 games in total. Um, You know, by all accounts, a, a wonderful woman, a retired elementary school librarian in Hollidaysburg, which is just probably about a five, 10 minute drive out of, uh, away from Altoona proper. So she retired and she was a baseball fan and then bam, the Altoona curve appear and she just went to every game. And, um, you know, so it's sad. She passed away in her early seventies and her husband, Ken, uh, who's also a retired teacher, he still comes to the games, um, and sits next to his wife's retired seat, you know, which no one sits in now, which uh, says in loving memory of a Susie Mielnik on the seat. And, um, so he still comes to the game, and it, you know he's kind of extending her streak by by showing up at the game. So just a a sad but touching story about uh, you know how much she loved the curve, and then how much people uh, in with the curve began to love her in the front office and the fans who sat around her and and that sort of thing. And uh, speaks to how meaningful minor league baseball can be to people. Yeah, and how many times do you find somebody like this? That you know, obviously she she was the special person to the curve and to Altoona. Um, when you're on these trips, I feel like every park has somebody who's been there for every season game for, you know, going back two decades, three decades, whatever. Um, is this, you know, just unique to Altoona? Is this somebody you always find on the road? I mean, what well, your experience? What's unique about Susie is the fact that she literally did not miss a game, 1,223 games. Um in my time covering minor league baseball, the only person I can think of who surpasses that in terms of not missing a game was front row Joe in uh, Daytona, the Daytona Cubs. Um, and he just volu- he, he just voluntarily ended that streak uh, a year or two ago just for no particular reason. Just said, you know like what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I want a night off yeah, during front row Joe. Yeah, Front Row Joe is the Cal Ripken of of fans of minor league fans, and he and he got up into fourteen or fifteen hundred, I believe, before he stopped. Uh, but I can't think of a streak longer than that. So that's what kind of, uh, you know, brought got me interested in this story because you do need an angle, and I always try to talk to uh, you know the the longtime fans at different places, and certainly that's been a a trope of the Ben's Biz on the road material for sure. But um, I do look for an angle just beyond like, hey, I'm a big fan and I've been coming for years. You know, it has to be a lot of years, or maybe you're a historian and you collect things, or you have a consecutive game streak. You know, uh, always looking for that angle. But uh, talking to Ken about his late wife Susie, and uh, you know, seeing Susie's seat, which you know is retired, and uh, you know, it's just a touching thing every time you walk by it. She sat in the same seat uh, every game for the entire of the franchise's existence uh, until she passed away. So uh, it's a meaningful thing. It's a really cool story, and it's up at MILB.com right now, the latest edition of Ben's On the Road Stories. And Ben is headed back out on the road uh, through the Carolinas and into the path of totality, which I know a lot of us are excited for on Monday, the uh, the eclipse coming up. Um, but Charleston, Columbia, down east, which is in Kinston, North Carolina, and Bowie's Creek. Uh, give us a, a little breakdown of what's coming up on this Carolinas trip. Right. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that um, this season uh, has been a good one for me in that I've gone on a trip and then gotten all my material from that trip done before the next trip. And uh, that's kind of falling apart here towards the end of the season. So uh, I still have more to write from the Northeast on the blog and at least one more MILB.com article. But that's going to be interrupted in real time by another trip uh, that I leave on Friday, the 18th. Uh, This trip I'm flying in and out of uh, Raleigh-Durham. And I'm going to start with the uh, Down East Wood Ducks, uh, who play in Kinston, North Carolina at Granger Stadium, which is something around 70 years old and uh, hosted the Kinston Indians in the Carolina League as recently as 2011. So uh, I had been there in the last season of the Indians, but excited to go to Kinston again and see this new era of baseball in Kinston, the Wood Ducks. And um, then I'm going down. I'm going to visit my pals, the Charleston River Dogs. Um, you know, I was there just last year, but uh, you know, the purpose of this trip was to see the two new teams in the in North Carolina, the Wood Ducks and the Bowie's Creek Astros, where I end my trip, as well as be in the path of totality for the Eclipse. So it's kind of an awkward agenda. So hitting the Wood Ducks first, and then uh, visiting the Charleston River Dogs. And right now, I'm in some. Uh, conversations with some members of the front office staff about some maybe uh, goofy directions to go with that night. Uh, about the director of fun? Are you in direct uh, correspondence with the director of fun or no? Uh, by that you mean Bill Bill Murray? No. Okay. Um, you know, Bill Murray, 
one doesn't re- reach out to Bill Murray. He just, <laughs> you know, true. he just, just appears yeah, and up. then blows up the internet just by doing anything. He's like, going to be a guest on the show once just by happenstance. Yeah, he probably will. Just walk like, into the office. And if he ever is a guest on the show, it's just because he like literally walks in now and sits down and it's a zany <laughs> thing. I'd love it if it happened. Um, and I have nothing bad to say about Bill Murray, but sometimes I roll my eyes a little bit because that dude can do anything. And people are like, oh, my God, greatest guy ever. I wish he was my uncle and dad rolled into one or whatever. Um, but he's cool. So I haven't been in touch with Bill Murray. Um, <laughs> Yeah, long story short. Um, but I'll be visiting my old pals, the River Dogs, on August 19th. And then I'm going to make my way to Columbia. And uh, I'll be in the path of totality for the eclipse on August 21st. You know, try to talk to some NASA scientists uh, who are at the ballpark. You know, talk to fans who've made a long trip to see it. Try to document this eclipse as well as I can. The game starts around 1 o'clock. And uh, somewhere around 2.20 the eclipse will hit. Columbia is in the path of totality, and uh, there'll be a built-in eclipse delay, and we'll all put on our glasses and witness the a uh, astronomical phenomenon together at a baseball game. So I'm really looking forward to that, and this is just something I've been excited about witnessing uh, ever since I heard about the eclipse. And the first time I heard about the eclipse is when the Salem Kaiser volcanoes uh, announced that they would be doing an eclipse fest. So the path of totality uh, begins in the Pacific Northwest and makes its way southeast uh, throughout the afternoon. Really only about a 94-minute period of time in which the eclipse is happening as it travels across the country. But there are several teams in the path of totality that are doing minor league promotions, starting in Salem, Kaiser, and Oregon, and um, ending, I believe, in Columbia or maybe Charleston as it uh, you know, heads out of the United States. But I will be in Columbia to witness it, and uh, I'm writing a story to run Friday with a, a larger overview um, of other teams that are doing things that are in the path of totality or in some cases just outside the path of totality but still trying to get in on that eclipse action because, hey, this stuff doesn't happen uh, very often. It's been 99 years, I believe, since there was a national eclipse. So the fact that our national pastime can, can be combined with the national eclipse is, I think, an ideal combination, and I'm looking forward to that. And then, as I said, I'm going to end the trip uh, – Heading back north into North Carolina and seeing the Bowie's Creek Astros. And I think that's going to be really interesting. They play at an old collegiate ballpark, uh, Campbell University. It's an old ballpark. Uh, I talked to the athletic director of the college um, in advance of my trip. And he said, look, you know, we're no frills running this. You know, it's a temporary team just until uh, a new ballpark in Fayetteville is built. So they're just running a no frills operation in an old college ballpark. You know, didn't go into the whole rebranding thing, just called themselves the Astros. I'm sure when the team moves to Fayetteville, they'll get a, a unique name. Uh, but for now, it's just seeing baseball in a real no frills environment. And it's only going to be here this year and next year. It'll be a little blip on the radar. And I bet in a few years, we'll be like, remember when there was a team in Bowie's Creek, Creek, North Carolina? <laughs> I mean, from what I've heard, it's barely a town. It's just like a post office designation. But, uh, you know, it had the proper uh, site and facility to, uh, to to host affiliated baseball while they build a new ballpark. And uh, so here we are. So I'll end uh, my travels in Bowie's Creek. And that'll be it for my road trip schedule in 2017 outside of, uh, you know, maybe some potential local stuff at the end of August or early September. Um, but uh, hitting the home stretch and it's kind of hard. I think I'm really excited for I'm Well, hopeful that this is going to be the case on Monday. But uh, when teams go into those delays, uh, whether it's weather related or ceremony related or whatever it is, uh, the box scores on MILB.com say delay and then weather or ceremony or power or whatever. And I'm wondering if the, the people at Stats have built in Eclipse for that to show up on Monday for all these teams that are going to be doing eclipse delays. I'm betting not because you're only going to use it once. They won't use it again until uh, I think the next one is slated to be actually in 2024. There will be one that covers at least part of the United States. So I'm probably not because I wouldn't think like you'd waste that much time if it's a time consuming thing, but I'm really hopeful. It's a dumb thing to be hopeful for, but I'm hopeful on Monday we'll see (laughs) delayed eclipse on a bunch of these box scores. Yeah, man, keep hope alive. I mean, there's only a few teams that have the built-in delays. Um, some teams like the Charleston River Dogs are having like a pre-eclipse viewing party and then the game itself. I think Nashville is going in that direction, but there will be built-in delays in Salem-Kaiser, in Columbia, uh, I believe in Bowling Green. Um, so several places there will be a built-in delay, and that's a really cool, unique thing. And as far as I know, unprecedented in, in, in baseball history, in all of baseball history, to have a built-in eclipse delay. So very cool. I mean, maybe going back to the 19th century we just weren't advanced enough to even know an eclipse was coming they're just in the middle of a day so game and they're like what is just going on why can't we see the ball <laughs> yeah yeah but they probably just rolled with it well what do you what are you exactly expecting columbia to to do outside of just the delay i mean are they going to be handing out 
glasses what exactly yeah i mean all, they kind of celebrate i know you're uh, gonna have like a, a fuller recap of this stuff later but. well they're wearing a total eclipse of the park jerseys you know special uh uh, jerseys illustrating the you know phenomenon of the moon covering the sun um and there's a, a science fair starting at 10 a.m with all sorts of uh you know exhibitors and uh, people explaining uh, various things related to the world of science astronomical and otherwise i believe there'll be at least one nasa scientist there so i got to talk to him and uh there's a post-game eclipse party i don't even know what that entails <laughs> but uh yeah i'll write it up as best i can i wish i was going to be coming out of this with some really spectacular footage um, but I'm sure the teams will do their best to document. I will do my best to document. Um, it'll be cool. It'll be real cool. It'll be the best. I feel like that'll be the perfect time for your, uh, well, RIP Vine, but your six-second ballpark joke. During the eclipse? During the eclipse. Man, I just want to witness it. I just want to let <laughs> let go for a moment yeah, right. and witness it. Now you're putting pressure on me. I'm to not putting do, pressure. Yeah, you I'm are. just saying it's an Now I got to do something. No, Instead of enjoying true. something for once, I have to like be cool and funny. Man, I don't know. Man, that got dark in a hurry. <laughs> you want to talk about an eclipse? That got dark I was just impersonating the moon. Nice and Sam work. The sun. Nice there work. Benjamin Hill's on Twitter at Ben's Biz. You can check the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. That on the road story from Altoona is up at milb.com right now. And uh, Ben, don't look at it for too long. Even though you're in the path of totality, it can still burn spots under your lenses if you stare. So don't stare. Okay. I will not stare. I'm just going to wear headphones and listen to the 11th studio album by Korn, Path of Thanks, Man. <laughs> okay, Dad. <laughs> Wrapping things up for episode number 123 of the Show Before the Show podcast. Big thanks to Alex Fiedo for joining the show. Um, Alex, you can find on Twitter, by the way, at Fiedo. Alex, F-A-E-D-O is his last name. And uh, big thanks to the floor, the former Florida Gators ace, who is now uh, getting ready for 2018 in the Tiger system. MILB.TV will run you right up and through the minor league baseball postseason through the rest of August and into September. And we got a lot of good races heating up and a lot of prospects who have been on the move, as we talked about in the first segment. But, Sam, what are you watching this week? Yeah, so I've got my eye on uh, a game this Saturday. Uh, Erie is traveling to Bowie. Uh, Seawolves versus the Bay Sox. The reason I say Saturday is it's looking right now like that's going to be the day that Bo Burrows is lined up to pitch for the Seawolves. Uh, six hitless innings in his last outing uh, over the weekend. Number 95 overall prospect. Can really throw with some heat. Uh, I remember seeing him at the Futures game. He threw maybe as hard as anybody outside of Tiago Vieira and uh, Michael Kopech in that outing. Uh, when you elongate him, he doesn't throw quite as hard for obvious reasons. Um, but he's thrown, he's shown really impressive stuff this year. Uh, he was a 2015 first or first round pick of the Tigers. He struck out 126 bats this year over 123rd innings. Um, he's had some stumbles that year. He's got a 4.38 ERA there, um, but overall still striking out about a bat or an inning uh, at that level. I would probably tell you to watch any of his starts, um, but the fact that they're going up against I – I always want to say Bowie, Bowie – uh, the Bowie Bay Sox is even more interesting because Bowie has two of the most interesting hitters in that Baltimore system this year. And number two prospect, Austin Hayes, and number three prospect, Ryan Mountcastle. Uh, two guys who have always had kind of a, I would say, offense first profile. Hayes especially has broken out this year. He, he's a above average runner. He's got a pretty good arm. Um, but he's showing a lot of power this year. 28 homers between Class A advanced Frederick and Double A Bowie. Uh and he's hitting 337 all along the way. So he's having as good an offensive season as we thought possible from him. Uh, Mountcastle has always had defensive questions. Is he going to stick it short? They've already moved him to third at double A. Um, he's had his own hiccups there. He's hitting 181 in 19 games. But uh, as a 20-year-old at that level, uh, it's all about gaining experience for him. I wouldn't be surprised if he grows into it, goes on a hot streak the rest of the way because he absolutely popped off at Class A advanced Frederick, hitting 314 with 51 extra base hits and 88 games there before he was promoted. So that's a real fun lineup, and not only that, but they're facing a real fun pitcher. Um, that's that's a game you want to watch if you're a Tigers or Orioles fan or just want to see some really uh, top 100 talent or close th thereof 
in uh, Mountcastle's case. So that should be a fun game this Saturday. Um, we don't often get to go to the California League for MILB.TV, but this weekend, the Lancaster Jethawks and the reigning California League Offensive Player of the Week, Garrett Hampson, will be on the road at Inland Empire to take on the 66ers. Um, Hampson, so far this season, with Class A Advanced Lancaster, slash line overall of 314, 375, 443. He's also stolen 45 bases um, and has been fantastic. He is the eighth-ranked Colorado prospect uh, and has been been a really fun player to watch in a system where he's overshadowed by a guy who's at the same position in Brendan Rogers. But uh, Garrett Hampson plays some second base. He plays some short, a Long Beach State product, so a school that has produced a ton of infield talent, especially is what it's known for across Major League Baseball. Um, Garrett Hampson has had a really impressive 2017. Sam and I were kind of talking off air. It's somewhat surprising. He hasn't been promoted yet, um, especially with the fact that Brendan Rogers is injured. But Lancaster has had a very good team season uh, overall this year. They're 66 and 55. So you kind of keep guys around for playoff hunts. Sometimes um, we saw Brendan Rogers hang around as uh, Lancaster captured the first half division title in the California league uh, in the South division. Brendan Rogers hung around until the all-star break there. So Garrett Hampson could be the one leading the charge for Lancaster into the playoffs out of the second half. Yeah, and I, I talked to him yesterday for the Players of the Week story and just kind of asked him, and he said, yeah, we're all talking about wanting to sweep the division. You know, we won the first half, we want to win the second half too and take some momentum in the playoffs. So he definitely didn't sound like a guy who's waiting to get the call to Hartford at any moment, um, but he certainly earned it. I mean, with his uh, above average speed and his ability to take stolen bases, I think he's number three in baseball right now in, stole, in stolen bases, and that team itself is is – maybe the most fun on the base pass on the minors this year. So uh, they maybe they just want him continually leading the charge, like you said, at, at the top of the lineup. But, um, yeah, if you're a Rockies fan, watch them all you can at, at that Class A advanced level. And uh, you, and you also can't pull the, oh, but it's only because he's in Lancaster because he's hitting 332 in Lancaster and 295 on the road. Pretty good everywhere. Um, so that'll do it for this week's edition of the Show Before the Show podcast. Sam Dykstra's on Twitter at Sam Dykstra, M-I-L-B. I am on Twitter at Tyler Mon. You can get in touch with the show, podcast at M-I-L-B.com. And we will be back next week as we head into the final couple of weeks of the regular season across minor league baseball and playoff races galore. He's Sam. I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next. We'll